Okay, we have Kyle bringing the message, and if you've talked to Kyle this morning, you will notice that his voice is a little raspy and a little higher pitched than normal. <laughs> and uh, I told my son Finn, I was like, Kyle's losing his voice. You might have to preach. And his eyes kind of got big, and, and I said, what are you going to preach on? Um, the peace of God. And I was like, what are you going to say? That he's the, he's the prince of peace. And I was like, so you, you have backup, Kyle. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, let me let me pray for Kyle. Father, just uh, lift up Kyle and just lift up his voice that you will use him and and use him to where he can speak your word and and encourage us and challenge us. And uh, I just uh, calm his nerves and don't let his voice distract you and us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. <laughs> <clears throat> Hope everyone had a good week this week. And uh, as Forrest said, if I sound like I'm 15, I apologize. <laughs> Try to get through it here. Now, we're going to start by where we left off last week in John chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there, John chapter 6. And we're going to begin today with a question that I'd like for us all to kind of keep in the back of our minds as we go through the lesson today. And that question is this. What is a true disciple What is a true disciple? How can you tell a true disciple? How can you tell one who is completely committed to Christ? Now, remember, we talked about chapter six a little bit last week and everything that's contained within it. It's a very dense chapter. And we said that it begins with two signs. It begins with the feeding of the five thousand where people came and they sought him and there was no food. And a boy had some fish and loaves and Christ took it. And multiplied it to feed the people who were there. And there was another sign, the sea voyage, or Christ walking on the water, where he came and he made himself known to the disciples in a time of chaos and in the time of storms. And what we're going to be getting into today is when people who were at the 5,000, they come and they seek him again. And he begins teaching them. And this is the beginning of his teaching that we referenced comes into play at the end of the chapter. In verse 66 of John 6, John tells us that as a result of his teachings, many of his disciples left and they would no longer walk with him. And then in verse 67, Jesus asked the 12, you do not want to leave also, do you? And we see this beautiful reply come from Peter, where he states that, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is where we come to realize the crux of the chapters that Christ's words, there's division in them at times. Look at the two responses that we see just in this chapter alone. We see that some heard his teaching and walked away, and others heard his teaching And they responded by confessing that his words carry eternal life. And it's those who endure the storms and hold strong until the end. They are the ones who are the true disciples. It is how you react after you come in contact with him. And so we're going to continue where we left off in verses 22 through 40. John 6, 22 through 40. 
And as we said, there's a lot going on here, but what we're going to focus on mostly today is the heart of the people who were seeking after him. John six twenty two through 40. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea <clears throat> that saw there was no other small boat there except one. <clears throat> and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate this manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of the heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, thank you, where was I, comes to me, I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, we said that there's a lot happening in these verses that we read, and there is, it's very dense. But notice that each chapter we've been going through segments itself into its own period of time. At the beginning of chapter 5 in verse 1, and at the beginning of chapter 6 in verse 1, and 7 in verse 1, you see the statement John writes down, after these things, meaning that after the things that had happened in the previous chapter, we are now entering into a new time period. And in chapter 6, 
Most people estimate that this is all happening within a 24 to 36 hour period. We see the people come and Jesus feed them. And then it's evening and the men take off and Christ comes to them at night. And then the next day is at Capernaum and they get up in the morning and they seek after him. And so this is all happening quickly that they are seeking after him. <clears throat> and we see that they reference signs. They ask him for a sign. John uses signs as a uh, as a miracle that displays the power of who Christ is. It shows the people around him who he is. And we talked about initially in the beginning of the book of John when we were starting, how there's seven signs in the book of John that we should watch for. And we've studied five of them. And even though all five are different, they all have a similar trait. After a sign occurs, belief is confessed. And so in the first sign in chapter 2 of John... We see that the water is turned into wine. And in chapter 2, 11, the way that that ends is by this. It states that this beginning of his signs Jesus did revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And the second sign in chapter 4, we see Jesus heals the official son. And it states that when the man returns to his house and he sees and he, his son, and he hears the news that states that he himself believed and his household. Again, there is belief that comes from the sign. And in the third sign, the healing of the man at the pool in chapter 5, the man went away and informed the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. A declaration of the miracle, and again, a confession of faith. And then there is the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And then what we talked about last week, the fifth sign, which was Jesus walking on the water. And we said that as he was walking over the turbulent waters, it was a callback to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2, where it states that the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So I am was hovering over the water Restoring order to chaos the same as he did in Genesis and creation. And we know that the way that that sign ends, according to Matthew 14, is with the disciples kneeling on the ship and praising him and stating that you are truly God's son. But the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. It seems a little different, doesn't it? Because there's not this massive statement of belief that follows it. In fact, in Mark 6.52, we talked about last week how Jesus walking on the water occurred to the disciples because they missed what they were supposed to see during the feeding of the 5,000. They missed it. And in 6.14, we do see that the people state that this is truly the prophet who has come into this world, so it's true that they do recognize something. But in the following verse, in verse 15 of chapter 6, we say that so Jesus, aware that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself. If these people who had been a part of this sign truly understood what they had seen, and who he was, one, he would not have withdrawn from them, and two, they wouldn't have came by force.
to take him and make him king. For immediate satisfaction for the Messiah that they wanted. Now seemingly, when we start to read this story, it seems as though these people did everything right, doesn't it? They went to look for him. And he wasn't there, so they began to do some detective work. There were no other boats. Jesus didn't go with the disciples, yet he's gone. The disciples weren't there, so they loaded up on boats and they crossed a sea seeking him. And they found him. And then they called him their respectful title, Rabbi, meaning teacher. And so this is seemingly perfect. It almost looks like this is the example of what we should do. We should seek him with this kind of heart. But that is the issue. It's the heart. It's not the actions. It's the heart. Christ knows the heart. He always knows the why in the actions of man. He knows why you're praying. He knows why you're reading scripture. He knows why you're seeking him. Is it to be with him or is it to get something from him? And in verse 26, he talks to these people and he confronts the issue of their heart. In verse 26, you see, he states that you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. It's almost as if he's saying, I show you a sign of creation and you come and ask for bread. He's making the point to them that they're focusing on the moment, not the eternal. And we can't entirely blame the people of ancient times for being this way because we know what a struggle for food was like back then you would have to spend months growing it and then harvesting it and store it and hope that it was good later on and even if you went somewhere to where you could buy food it wasn't like mcdonald's where you were through the line in five minutes It took time and it was a struggle. So to find a source that was immediate like that would be something that you would want to hold on to. And Christ understands that in the following verse, in verse 27, after confronting them about why they were seeking him, he states, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. And this echoes the teaching that he gives the people in Matthew 6. When he states, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The focus of both of these teachings is that the people are stuck in the moment. They're focused solely on what's going on around them. They're not focused on the eternal. No matter what happens in his will, we know what the end is. As believers, the end is that we will be with him in eternity. But it's hard sometimes, isn't it, when storms rage all around us, when chaos rages all around us, not to take our eye off of Christ and sink into the mire as Peter did, and to lose focus of Christ, even if for a moment. And that is what these people were also doing. They were seeking him for food, not because of the signs that he had shown them. And Christ again addresses this. They ask for a sign and there was a a rabbinical tradition at the time that if a rabbi was worth listening to and you were unsure if you should or not, he would do a sign so that you knew he was worthy. And so even after the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, they ask him for a sign again when he begins teaching them. 
And he addresses this again in verse 36, their heart, where he states that you have indeed seen me and yet you do not believe. You've seen the sign, you've seen me and you still do not believe. And this begs and goes straight to the point of the entire chapter as we continue to add up these stories and add up these events and look at the things that Christ is teaching people. And it points to this. Just because you see signs and you're around believers and you see his works and you hear his words, that doesn't mean that you are a believer. It doesn't mean that you are a disciple You can do all of these things and check all of them off of the list, but it is only putting your faith in Christ Jesus that saves you from eternal damnation. It is not what you do. It is who you believe in. And when you sit and you see this in Matthew 13, Christ makes this point again. He talks about the parable of the sower. And I'm going to read this. If you want to turn there, you can. Matthew 13. And we're going to be reading Christ's explanation Verses 18 through 23. And we know the parable of the sower just for a review. Jesus is talking about a man who is sowing seeds and the seed is the word of the kingdom. And it falls on different types of ground. One, it falls on hard ground and a bird comes and and sweeps away the seed. Another falls on thorny ground and it is choked out. And another falls on good ground and it produces. And... They are confused, the disciples, and they continue to ask him for an explanation. And this is what he says, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of the of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So we see in his explanation He continues to talk about what happens after man makes contact and all the different ways of response. We see the hard ground represents someone who is hardened by sin. And he hears, but he does not understand the word. And so Satan comes and plucks the message away. And the stony ground is a picture of a man who professes the light with the word. However, his heart is not changed. And when trouble arises because of the word, his so-called faith quickly disappears. The thorny ground depicts one who seems to receive the word, but whose heart is full of the things of this world, which take his time and attention away from the word, and he ends up having no time for it. And the good ground portrays the one who hears, 
understands and receives the word. And so we see when we look at these different types of men and their response, the fruit that comes about, the multiplication, the growth, the way that it affects those around you. That is how we can tell the true disciple. It's what occurs after contact with him. But even though there are all these different responses to all the different ways we come in contact, the one that is specifically being talked about in the chapter we are reading is his words. What do you do with his words? What do you do with the teachings of Christ, the red letters in your Bible? Look at how divisive they are. They divide churches. They divide families. They divide friendships. Look at the world around us and just think about some of his teachings. And you can completely understand this. When speaking on marriage, Christ states that what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's not popular. Speaking on marriage again, he addresses genders and says, God made them male and female. That's not popular today either. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not universal. You don't get to decide what path you take to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Him. He is the bread of life, just like He was trying to teach these people. And we see this play out in this chapter, the way that man responds to Christ's words and His teachings. We said earlier that the people sought after him. They called him rabbi. They called him rabbi. And we see that even though rabbi means teacher, the more he teaches them, the more confused they get. And if they were to consider him as an actual rabbi and his words had weight in their life, They would have listened and they would not have walked away like it says they did at the end of the chapter. And who else saw the works of God and listened to his teachings and walked away and called him rabbi? In Matthew 26, 49, Jesus is at the garden and we see a disciple named Judas approach him. And he states, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. All the things that Judas would have seen and Christ was never anything more to him than a rabbi. For these people, he was never more than a rabbi. And for Judas and all the things he saw, his title never went beyond rabbi. But for the other disciples, the one who started out initially calling him rabbi, what did they call him in the end? They called him Lord, Savior, Messiah, the one who was prophesied about. Doubting Thomas sits and sees him after the resurrection and declares, My Lord and my God. And Peter, at the end of this chapter, as we talked about, when Christ is asking if they will leave, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Your words have eternal life. And we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The mark of a true disciple is what we do with the words of Christ and how they're embedded on our heart and the way that they change our life. And if Christ were to address us each individually or even as a church on our walk, on our seeking of him, what would he say? How would he address each one of us? 
Initially, we ask the question, what is a true disciple? And to answer that, a true disciple is one who seeks Christ wholeheartedly, not solely for his needs in the moment, but for the sake of being with him. One who sees eternal life as only being through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is manna from heaven, one sent to us to save us from eternal damnation. And this we confess as believers in him. His words and his teachings will never fade from the heart of a true disciple. Nor will a disciple's faith fade when the world around him pressures him. A true disciple sees no other way but the way and sees his faith in Christ alone. Till their final day when they go home to be with him. They seek him because of the signs they see and because he is their Messiah, not because of what he can do for them. And so now we ask, why is it that you seek him? Do his words matter to you? Do his words have eternal life attached to them? Would you cross a sea to find him? And if so, why? For his sake or yours? When the world pulls away because his teaching isn't making sense, Do you hold on because there is nowhere else to go? Is he the bread of life or simply one who blesses when asked? Is he a rabbi who only gives you what you need in the moment? Or is he a shepherd whom you trust wholeheartedly? Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for your teachings. We thank you for the way that you guide us, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We pray that you continue to watch over us as we move forward. I pray, Lord, that you bless everyone in here. Uh, I pray that we lift each other up in prayer, that we reach out to each other when times of need arise. I pray, Lord, that you bless our weeks and that you help us to grow in you and your word and to be a witness of you to a fallen world. Amen.